Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Surveillance today. Greg Valliere from Horizon Investments. David Harrow of Harris Associates. Megan Green from Manulife and Stephen Roach, formerly Morgan Stanley's chief economist, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, now senior lecturer at the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs at Yale University and senior lecturer at the Yale School of Management. And Stephen, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. I wonder how you are going to be uh, watch how Stephen Roach, renowned economist, is going to be watching the the results come in. And I don't mean are you going to get a spot on a couch in the the Schwarzman Center at Yale tonight to watch the the votes roll in? But what are you going to be looking for? How are you going to process what's happening here tonight and and indeed maybe tomorrow? You know, I, I as I said on TV a few minutes ago, I, I have a sneaking suspicion this is not going to be close. That um, you know, the poll showed a little bit of momentum uh, post. Uh, uh, FBI twist and 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 that that is now um, out out of the um, uh, the game and I I think that the the American public um, I think we have to give them credit for having more character than um, uh, Donald Trump does and I think there's going to be a strong reaction against uh, everything that he stands for and I think that you know the decency of the American people will ultimately prevail in choosing the next president. We've talked a, a lot about, indeed we can continue to talk about here, what effect the election could have on the economy going forward. But looking back on the, the campaign, this incredibly long 19-month uh, campaign, what measurably, what effects measurably have that had, has that had on the, on the economy? I don't think it's had much of any. I think the economy has is, is really been operating um, with uh, very little steam. Growth has faltered a lot in the last... Um, year from an already anemic uh, trajectory that had been on since uh, the crisis. I think the economy is struggling against a lot of tough headwinds. Some of the headwinds are global, but most of them are, are of, of our own making. The Federal Reserve has uh, done everything in its power to jumpstart the economy with zero interest rates and massive balance sheet expansion. That hasn't worked. Uh, we haven't gotten the fiscal kick that many believe would make a difference. I'm a little suspicious of that as well, as if we can manufacture uh, a recovery in aggregate consumer demand uh, by uh, infrastructure spending, as, as the secular stagnation crowd would want you to believe. Um, I think we need a deep rethink of, of the dynamics or lack thereof of the American economy. I think that's what um, uh, President Clinton's going to have to face uh, in early on in her administration. This hasn't been a, a campaign of real serious thinking. The, the, there's been a lot of rhetoric <laughs> and noticed, not, yeah. not a lot of policy issues. Are, are, are you uh, at all optimistic that we will get that, that period of introspection, that, that we'll have a deep think about where the economy should be I think be that's headed? a terrific question. And I think um, uh, the one thing I do know about um, Hillary Clinton as a, you know, as a senator, actually as a first lady, as a secretary of state, that um, uh, she has got a spectacular mind. Uh, and uh, she's had to put a lot of that 
intellectual firepower on, on hold to deal with a very aggressive and a nasty uh, campaign. And I hope she can go back to her strengths as somebody who, who really gets the, uh, uh, the concepts and the issues uh, that are at the heart of the challenge that she will face uh, as president, not just in the economic arena, but in the foreign uh, policy arena and in the social uh, arena as well. And she's got, uh, you know, I think, great skill sets to, to grapple with all of those and then put them together. And let's hope that she can put together the team that can really address these uh, challenges. Stephen Roach of Yale University with us today. Of course, his book, classic book, The Next Asia, as we talk to him about the next America. You can also follow David Gura, who will be on radio for hours. And then I believe, John Tucker, they've given him away on television during the daylight hours. Yes. I will 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 be able to go vote. Parent-teacher conference. Oh, parent-teacher right. conference. Very, the real world. <laughs> let's go right now to our surveillance expert on parent-teacher conferences. He has nine daughters, Stephen Roach. Stephen, six, how Tom, do you? Six. Uh, sorry, how do you approach a parent-teacher conference? Help young girls. This is my first. Yeah. Coffee. Lots coffee. of coffee. <laughs> Lots of coffee and um, deference. Right. Yeah. That's listen. Good. Be a okay. be a good listener. Good. Uh, and but draw the line. You know, if it goes a little too far, stand up for your kid. Understood. Love it. Uh, let me ask you about uh, – I'm glad you brought up the specter of, of fiscal stimulus. Both these candidates have talked about spending billions uh, on infrastructure here uh, if, if they're elected. What, what are the, the sort of what are the what could be the near term effects of that? What could be the long term effects of something like that? If indeed there are you know, potential for long term effects, look, America needs to repair its infrastructure. I mean, you know, on, on the car ride in uh, today uh, from um, uh, Connecticut into Manhattan, you know, I I, I think I had. Um, um, whiplash multiple times from hitting uh, innumerable potholes. And this is, you know, not even the pothole season yet. Uh, the roads in this city, the airports in this city uh, are uh, pathetic. We all know we need infrastructure, but is this going to fix what ails the American economy? We need to look at that very carefully. Uh, infrastructure can boost uh, aggregate demand through public sector spending, for uh, you know, a, a temporary period of time, but unless it catches on uh, to drive um, uh, consumers and businesses to really raise their sights on growth aspirations and expectations, mm. uh, then it's, it, again, it's, it's sort of like pushing on a string, and we've been pushing on lots of strings <laughs> in the last 10 years. Let's take you back to Morgan Stanley. You and Dick Byrne are sitting around at a table 20 years ago, and somebody says, here's the aggregate economy, 2 point whatever percent, but we really ought to take out inventories and take out exports. That parlor game is going on right now. Do you disaggregate economic growth to make it a domestic statistic, or do you take it all in and say the last quarter was actually pretty good? Look, Tom, I mean, GDP is a broad construct that consists of lots of, of, of different pieces. Um, I, in, in the last 10 years— um, more so than my good friend Dick, has focused on the American consumer because I think that has really been uh, uh, the Achilles heel of uh, uh, the U.S. economy as consumers binged out on spending uh, by borrowing against a property bubble and using a credit bubble to do it. When the bubbles burst, the consumer was left holding the bag, and they're still trying to climb out. Polls are open in New Hampshire. David Blanche Flower tweeting out, let me quote exactly, the esteemed professor from Dartmouth College. 
I am and an the immigrant. great advocate of QE. I am an immigrant, <laughs> and I am voting proudly for at Hillary Clinton. That from Professor Blanche Flower. Uh, not, not alone in Hanover. Uh, Steve Roach, where's our immigration right now? The answer is there's less immigration, and that folds directly into less nominal GDP, doesn't it? Well, I think, you know, uh, the, the one distinguishing feature about the U.S. economy compared to other developed economies is that we continue to enjoy population growth, both through a, uh, a, a positive uh, net uh, birth rate as well as through positive immigration, Tom. And, and although the rate of increase is somewhat slower than it has been, uh, we, we continue to, um, uh, uh, as I said, boost our workforce, and um, we need to do that to overcome very mm-hmm. tough productivity headwinds. David Gurren, Tom Keen, thrilled you're with us. Nationwide this election day. Good morning on Sirius and XM Channel 119. Many of you, I'm sure, going to the polls and waking up across Central Mountain and Pacific time as well. We begin our coverage this morning with Stephen Roach of Yale University. Stephen, I want to color the consumer here. You have provided immense leadership in the shortfall of our consumption. Is it just we build up so much debt coming out of World War II, moving on, and then even adding on more debt from there? Well, Tom, there, there's a secular uptrend in, in debt to income for American households. But what happened is that, um, you know, in the, the late 1990s and early 2000s, uh, we, we torqued it up in a, in a big way. And so debt to income, which had been on an upward trend, uh, soared to about, um, I think, 130, 135% of um, disposable personal income versus uh, an average of uh, about 75% in the final three decades uh, of the 20th century. And that debt uh, was levered against a massive, unprecedented property bubble uh, and uh, aided and abetted by your friend the maestro who believed that um, – uh, rising debt to income was not a threat because America was not experiencing a nationwide housing bubble. When both bubbles burst, property and credit, uh, the consumers were in the biggest hole they'd been in uh, since the 1930s. And digging out of that hole is what a balance sheet recession uh, is all about. And we've made progress. But I'd say, you know, in a nine-inning baseball game, which you're familiar with, Tom, as a Red Sox fan, sadly, um, <laughs> We're probably in, you know, the fifth or the sixth inning, and um, uh, that means there's still a lot to be played, and we may even have to go into extra innings. Do, do, do you see, David, the hot stove league? The stove is, I mean, they have the coals upon the fire, and Roach is already killing me. Oh, I love it. I'm still in therapy. I love it. May, may I use debt as a segue here to ask you a question about China and the degree to which the, the administration there is worried about, aware of and worried about the, the debt picture there? We saw a, a rejiggering of the leadership, a new, a new finance minister there. Uh, what does that portend for dealing with that debt in China? There's a big debate, David, right now inside of China about <clears throat> debt-intensive growth uh, as a precursor to a Japanese-like uh, L-shaped um, economic outcome. That would be an unmitigated disaster uh, for uh, China. China doesn't need to go back to 10% growth that it enjoyed for 32 years, uh, but it's it's growing now, you know, around 7 uh, and uh, most likely will slow further uh, in the years ahead. But the, the downside uh, is uh, of, of great concern uh, if um, China repeats the 
Japanese-like um, uh, debt crisis. Uh, the banks are, play a hugely disproportionate role in China, and that's always the place to look for debt-related issues. Uh, loan quality has deteriorated both in commercial banks as well as in the shadow banking sector. And so there's a lot of focus on what the government calls supply-side policies. We don't know exactly yeah. what they are to delever uh, the Chinese economy. And so far, this is um, uh, you know, more talk uh, than, than reality in addressing this issue. David Gurr, I just made a chart. I'm going to call it the Roach chart of consumer uh, uh, consumption in America. And the American consumer, if you could take it from 1960 to 2000, we're down 53% in consumption growth from the, the glory of what it used to be to what we've seen since August of 07. That's, it's halved. Amazing statistic. Save that chart, Tom. I'm saving it right now. <laughs> I'm going to steal it and use it on TV tomorrow. Well, you, that wouldn't be the first time you've done that. Thank you. <laughs> Last question here, Stephen, about the relationship between China and the U.S. Of course, you've, you've written a, a book about this. Uh, has, has China been willfully deaf to, to the rhetoric on this campaign trail? What's the legacy of, of what we've heard over these last 19 months going to be with regard to our relationship with China? Well, that's an interesting question, David. I mean, uh, my take on the relationship is one of codependency, where China depends on us uh, as consumers to buy um, goods that they produce that, that played a very important part in driving uh, their economic growth miracle. But we depend on them uh, to give us the cheap goods that stock the shelves of Walmart um, you know, to make ends meet. And, um, you know, I, I think in, in a codependent relationship – Usually what happens is one partner sort of wakes up and changes, uh, and that change is going on in China right now. They're trying to stimulate their own consumption, which will draw down their surplus saving, which we have counted on to fund our economy and, and, and buy our treasuries and, and support yeah. our deficit spending. So if, as China changes, and if we don't, uh, then there's going to be a lot of pressure on us uh, to figure out right. a, a new way to grow. Stephen Roach with us with Yale University. He is scheduled in about an hour to have a most interesting interview on Bloomberg Television. Stephen Roach, with his support of the U.S. and the support of China, uh, in discussion, we hope, with Peter Navarro, who has been a great supporter of Trump economics and is exceptionally cautious on our relationship with China. David Gurren, Tom Keene, this election day, this is Bloomberg. his insights uh, from time to time as Tom reads from his notes. Of course, we talk to him by phone often as well. It's a pleasure to have in studio with us Greg Valliere of Chief Global Strategist at Horizon Investments in New York on Election Day. Uh, Greg, nice to see you. Great to be with you. Let me ask you, in light of, of what's happened here, the back and forth over this email scandal, are there any black swans left in the political pond or was that it? Well, you hear rumors, but hopefully that's it. <laughs> yes. Does, does this continue to, to, to go on, uh, albeit not one here, that the, the election uh, ends things today, but is this something that will continue to dog uh, Secretary Clinton going forward? Absolutely. You know, this is Washington. It's a new climate. It's a very bitter, nasty, polarized environment. I think there's going to be hearings and more investigations and more partisanship. Her honeymoon will be very short. What is the, the, the uh, Horizon Investments base case at, at this point? How do you see things playing out today going into tomorrow? I think a pretty narrow win uh, in the Electoral College. I think she wins by 
two, three points, maybe four in the popular vote. But without Florida, this could only be like she might only get 275 votes. You need 270. Uh, With Florida, we can all go to bed a little earlier. Uh, Just in, and this off Twitter, Howard Ward, who gives us wonderful perspective on equity markets, uh, tweets out, quote, biggest crowd ever seen at polls this morning. Mr. Ward is of a certain vintage. Yep. And I, I'm not sure where his poll is. David, do you know where Howard Ward is? I don't know. What state even? But nevertheless, there's the first anecdotal of a big turnout. Yeah, you hear that every four years, and sometimes the final statistics don't bear it out. Okay. But okay. but the, the early voting is impressive, especially among Hispanics. I think that's the major reason why I think yeah. Hillary Clinton's going to win. I've had this question three times in the last three or four days. You nail it in your morning note. Thank you. The place of Senator Warren within a Clinton presidency. I'm confused. Does she move over to the administration? Does she stay in the Senate? And what's it mean for Global Wall Street? I think Elizabeth Warren stays in the Senate and is a provocateur. I think she'll start sniping. She and Bernie Sanders and Paul Krugman will start sniping at Hillary Clinton by uh, Late winter? Can she control who becomes treasury? Can she control the SEC chairman? Does she have a veto power, Tom? I think yeah. yes. I think she does get a veto power. She gets a say in whether we move toward a single-payer health insurance plan. She has a role in our troop level in the Middle East and on and on and on. What, is it, what does it say that we're talking about her as the head of the, the progressive branch of the Democratic Party here and not the, the gentleman who uh, ran, ran for the Democratic nomination? Is, is Bernie Sanders now in the, in the backdrop and, and Elizabeth Warren in the front? Well, Bernie Sanders just turned 75. That's getting up there. And, and I think that Elizabeth Warren is going to inherit his army, is a very passionate army. And I think if this uh, president-elect Hillary Clinton doesn't satisfy her, we'll start to hear speculation about a challenge from her in 2020. Mm. Has the relationship between those two, between Senator Warren and Secretary Clinton, warmed? We've seen them both on, on the campaign trail. Uh, they weren't the fastest of friends. Yeah, but, but I do think uh, Elizabeth Warren has been such a pit bull against Donald Trump that she certainly endeared herself. You know, just like the Obamas and the Clintons aren't that friendly, I think a campaign this arduous has bonded them. Is, is this a Congress that will do something uh, in these next few months? And if so, what's it going to be? There's been a lot of talk about the prospects for tax reform, prospects of a, a vote here on, on the TPP. Do you anticipate anything happening here uh, in the lame duck session and then in the first few months of, of the next president's tenure? Lame duck, the wild card by far is Merrick Garland, the Supreme Court nomination. They'll keep the government open. That'll happen. <clears throat> Early next year, the big story by far is the debt ceiling. And yeah. if, pa- if Paul Ryan doesn't handle that adroitly, There'll be a rebellion among yeah. his troops, and Paul Ryan is on thin ice. Back, back to the horse race, which folds in all the campaigning we've seen, and I, I don't believe this show has talked about it, and I've been remiss in that. Senator Rubio, I believe, was a layup. Yeah. That's not true, right? I think, As we go into polling today. I think he'll win, but let's say Hillary Clinton <clears throat> wins Florida by two points. You know, the Rubio margin is going to be really narrow. I, I, you're right, Tom. I thought a month ago Rubio would win by five, six points. Now I'm not quite as sure. Does he pick up the Latino vote, the same vote very quickly, or the same vote that Secretary Clinton gets? Uh, uh, some of it. And, and he becomes a big player. He's got six more years to get some gravitas. It is Election Day, and we are really honored to have in our studio someone who lives the country, lives on airplanes, Greg Villiers of New Hampshire, uh, on this election day. Greg, we try on surveillance to look forward, and by definition that means third parties. Anybody who's a student of history knows there's 
Ross Perot and John Anderson and the others. But what there really is, is 1912. The establishment <laughs> didn't like that upstart. Yeah. What was his name? Roosevelt? He was yep. bragging about yep. his Philippine exhibition. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, 1912. We went for another one. Could be. I mean, we got Woodrow Wilson out of that race. He had two Republicans running against one Democrat. So fearless forecast, Tom. I think the Republican Party begins a civil war within weeks, maybe within days of this election. Bitter, bitter opposition to Paul Ryan by the Trump people who think Ryan is a traitor. And I think you could see the Republican Party split into two. The, the Chamber of Commerce, more moderate Republicans against the Sean Hannity, Russia. Limbaugh Tea Party Republicans. If that happens in 2020, th that could be the pathway for a Democrat to win. Who controls 310 Fruit Street Southeast in D.C. now, site of the Republican uh, National Committee? Who has that the keys to the bill? <laughs> yeah, really. Where? <laughs> 310, 310. Yeah. Uh, who, who has the keys? In other words, if there is a third party, which, which branch is creating it? Uh, is is the, the old guard establishment Republican Party leaving, or are they going to stay and we're going to see an offshoot? Well, I think they're, they want to stay. The, the, we're talking about the Chamber of Commerce, the, uh, the pro-free trade Republicans. Mitch McConnell has been very crafty. He has endorsed uh, Trump, but not too warmly, whereas, you know, again, uh, Ryan is viewed as a traitor. But the, the core of that party... I think is the is the more centrist party. I, I think the outcasts, the outsiders, the insurgents who were so strong at the base around the country, those folks, the Sean Hannity wing, I think they're going to have to form their own party. And they'll have a TV network maybe headed by Donald Trump to advance their narrative. An amazing line in your most recent note here. We think a Kasich-Rubio ticket would have won tonight's election, today's election, by a six to eight yep. point margin. Sure. Well, you, you look at Ohio, 18 votes. You look at Florida, 29 votes. You look at, a, you know, so many people said, you know, we could accept uh, Kasich. A lot of moderates would. Uh, I think this huge defection of Hispanic votes that's going to bury Trump tonight obviously wouldn't have occurred had Rubio been on the ticket. So I think it would have been a vastly different race had it been uh, a Kasich-Rubio ticket. Absolutely. What's the, the consequence of the, the uncertainty that could come out of tonight? If we don't get a concession speech tonight from, from either candidate, yeah. it takes us back to, to 2000 when it dragged on and on and yep. on. What does that mean for, for investors, that waiting game? Yeah. You know, everybody talks about what's the implication if she wins, what about if he wins? What if, what if we do not have a definitive result tonight, that we have hanging chads and recounts for days, if not weeks, right. without anybody being sure who actually won? That would be a well, really bad story. I mean, this is an important point, and I, I guess we're asking for your treatment with decades of perspective on the word rigged. What does rigged mean to Mr. Value? I think it's overhyped, like so much of what Trump says. Yeah, are there people who are dead to vote? Of course. Are there, you know, irregularities in Philadelphia? Of course. But it rigged. I, I think that's that's a real stretch. Are there biases against mm -hmm. Trump? Yes. But I think rigged is an explosive word. He's got to right. be careful playing with matches. As Secretary Clinton, of course, the pageantry last night in Philadelphia was a beautiful, all the people in front of Independence Hall and the First Lady speaking and the president. When, when you look at all this, Greg Villiers, it's a nation that has to move on. The yeah. traditional path is the president moves to the center. Yes. Do you predict that for Secretary Clinton? 
or is it just not going to happen this time? I think she'd like to. I think her instinct is to move to the center, but she has to deal with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, but Ronald Reagan left. had to deal with yeah. whoever in the South. Yeah. But I, I think it, it, essentially she's a pragmatist. That's how she was as a senator. That's how Bill governed. And I think she will try to govern as a pragmatist. But Elizabeth Warren will start sniping by spring, guaranteed. Stephen Roach and I were joking about the, the lack of discussion about issues in, in this yeah. campaign, lack of discussion about yep. politics. But but seriously here, are we ever going to get a campaign in which issues are at the center? Well, this sir hasn't been one. I mean, you, you look at rural America, you ask people what their biggest concern is, heroin. Uh, you look at people in the markets who look at 10 years down the road, we can't necessarily pay for all the benefits well, we promised. I, I, I want to rip up the script here. I, I remember the New Hampshire primary, and we were thrilled to have you on then from your New Hampshire. And it was amazing to see establishment, the many candidates running, and all anybody in the audience wanted to talk about was drug addiction in New Hampshire. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that was yeah. maybe one of those initial points yeah. where we knew this time was different. You look at the heroin overdoses in Manchester, New Hampshire. It's like uh, Baltimore, New York, Chicago, maybe worse. So I, I do think there are a lot of really important issues, going back to David's question, that have been ignored. Maybe because the prescriptions are too bitter. No, everyone's chicken to talk about you know difficult solutions to problems. No one wants to hear this. But it's really been an abdication by the politicians. It's a good question. How does the agenda change when someone is, is elected? Do you see a, a President Clinton or President Trump remembering what that conversation was like in New Hampshire, maybe elevating that on, on the agenda? Does that tend to happen in the past? It, it could, but it's a matter of what you can get done. And, and I just don't see a lot that she's going to get done. I think I see a Congress that will try to block her. She'll do a lot with regulations, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. She'll have a big role geopolitically, right. that's for sure. Um, well, I guess one inside baseball, and we'll let you go. You've been more than generous with your time this morning. Uh, I think a week ago there was talk of Vice President Biden looking awfully good as a Secretary of State. Can he do it, or is he too fragile? I, I, I don't see it. I, I think he's too prone to gaffes. I think he's he doesn't stick to the script enough. Uh, mm -hmm. He's well-liked, but I think Joe Biden as Secretary of State, that's just, uh, boy, that just doesn't add up for me. Who would be one? Uh, maybe someone who is, who has left Congress fairly recently. No one immediately comes to mind. Uh, I was thinking of John Tucker. I think, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd be pressing the button like within minutes. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that happen. Greg, uh, one more thought sure. as we go to tonight. Help David Gura out here with his coverage yeah. after 7 p.m. Yeah. tonight. What will David Gura need to focus on, say, at 9 p.m.? Two stories uh, dwarf everything else. Number one, the ground game. The, the Clinton ground game is the greatest ground game in the history of American politics. It's worth a point or two in some states. Second point, we don't talk about this enough, is how dramatically this country has changed demographically. We're biracial. We're diverse. We're multicultural. I mean, the country has fundamentally shifted, and I think a lot of people still don't recognize it. Greg Villiers, thank you so much. More than generous with your time today with Horizon uh, Investors. David, were you taking notes? I took right here. Good. Points one and two. <laughs> they're, they're going in the question line. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. 
That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. bring in David Harrow. Uh, we usually speak investments and of course, international investments, David Harrow of Chicago, but with his immense affinity for Wisconsin, where there is a key race tonight, the Senate race, David Harrow, you uh, are, are quite vocally a Republican. Ron Johnson has done better than good against Mr. Feingold. What does Mr. Johnson need to do to win in your Wisconsin this morning? Well, you know, it's all about turnout and getting your supporters to the polls. And if I think Mr. Johnson could do that, and if his supporters are more enthusiastic than Mr. Feingold's, which I'm hoping to be the case, um, then I think he has a good chance of winning. Uh, recall he entered office six years ago. It was his first political run ever. Uh, he's a manufacturer. He's a businessman. He's not from the political class. And and Mr. Feingold, of course, is just the opposite. Right. He's been in politics all his life. So uh, I'm, I'm cheering for, for Mr. Johnson. I think he's a very strong candidate. I think right. he's been a good senator. Uh, he just isn't necessarily have strong political skills because that's not what he is. One of our themes this morning, David Harrow, is how the states of our childhood has changed. My Western New York has changed. Many would say it's been carved out uh, into a non-economic wasteland. David Gurr was talking about his North Carolina. How has your Wisconsin changed over the decades? Well, let's see. The Packers aren't doing as well as they should be doing. <laughs> no, but that was the, the same. That was the and, same. And by the way, Tom, you owe me an apology given the results yes. of the World Series yes. last week. <laughs> was that a great game? Anyway, that was a great game. Uh, you know, Wisconsin Wisconsin isn't, has changed, but I don't think so radically so. You still have the manufacturing base in the southeast. And, of course, the central part of the state is very agricultural, a lot of dairy farms and cheese factories. And then the north part of the state is woods and lakes. And that's kind of the rough, rough makeup of Wisconsin. Uh, there was a good article in the Wall Street Journal last week about Im uh, immigration flows into places like western Wisconsin and all over, which has added a little bit of diversity to the state. But it was a fairly diverse state anyway. The southeast is very, uh, very German. And as you move to the north, you get the Dutch. And then the northwest, you get the Scandinavians. So, you know, it's still, to me, um, it hasn't changed radically, and it is a place for good government. I mean, it, it's relatively clean and transparent, very different than uh, where I'm sitting here in Chicago, where pay-to-play is the, is the rule of the day. David, let me ask you about uh, allegiance to party in the, in the context of, of this election. I imagine you and others have, have thought a lot about that. Uh, I think of, of Paul Ryan campaigning with Mike Pence, but, but not with Donald Trump. Has party played a less important role in this election? I, I, I sense that on the Democratic side and the Republican side, there are those who uh, might not be that enthusiastic about the candidate but still feel some tie to the party. Yeah, I mean, I personally believe that one should be uh, have allegiance to your values and what you believe is important and important issues. And whether it's a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian, whoever it is that has those issues, character, um, whatever these uh, characteristics are, that's who you should go for. I'm, I'm not someone who, who advocates just blindly following a party. I, I don't think it's a good right. thing. Um, you know, and as as someone who usually votes Republican, uh, I would you know this is a tough tough year. 
Uh, a quick note, David. Jump in here with David Hero, but David Gura, uh, Dan Kennedy, professor, New York Northeastern University in Boston, with a photograph. And I guess this is the anecdote of turnout. Greg Vallier, David Gura, warning us to be careful about the early take on turnout. But uh, at the West Medford Fire Station, West Medford, <laughs> Massachusetts, Professor Kennedy has a photo stretching around the block. Is there enthusiasm for voting uh, where you are in Illinois, uh, where you're from in, in, in Wisconsin? Is there still enthusiasm for the, the, the act of democracy? Yeah, I, th- I generally think so. Uh, Chicago doesn't seem to be as, and I think this is, by the way, true everywhere. You don't see bumper stickers this year. You don't see a lot of yard signs as in the past. It, it, today, driving in, I almost didn't see anything in Chicago. Now, in Wisconsin, there was a little more. I was in Wisconsin over the weekend. There was a little bit more. But it used to be in the olden days, the Daily Machine whipped everyone up, and there would be signs every two feet for someone going up and down, say, Michigan Avenue or anywhere. It's very quiet here this year in, in Illinois. There's some statewide races going on because the governor's fighting with the Speaker of the House, and there's been a lot of money flying around. But I think in a state like Illinois, which really isn't in play, um, there's a lot of turnoff, and there will, I think there will be low turnout. It's just my guess. David Harrell, we saw a pop in the market yesterday. <clears throat> You are not one to worry about a one-day pop in the market, but it does show the linkage of our politics into market emotion. If Secretary Clinton is voted president, is that good for the portfolios of Mr. Harrow? I think um, this is just a guess, and, and, and this is just short-term trading. I think in the medium and long term, the, the difference is, is very small, depending. But if, if Secretary Clinton wins the presidency and the Republicans maintain both houses, I would imagine that is would be the most optimistic case for the markets and in the short-term performance. Now, what ultimately matters, what ultimately matters is what policies do the politicians put forth that impact companies' ability to earn money and to grow cash flow streams. And here's where there's often opportunity in the short-term investors or traders, I should say, act in a very knee-jerk fashion, reacting to every change in polls or change in election outcome. And Actually, the changes in business value don't move in in such a knee-jerk way. Changes in business value happen over the medium and long term. And, you know, business people could also react to these changes in legislation. So that's ultimately what happens and what we have to watch as long-term investors. As traders, I think definitely uh, what markets want are uh, Mrs. Clinton to be elected and the Republicans to control both houses. Uh, I'm not sure why that's either, but, but I think that's what markets David Harrell will continue with us with Harris Associates in Chicago. His perspective on uh, his Wisconsin, as Mr. Harrell mentioned, he is one in support uh, of not always, but usually Republican politics. Uh, David Gura, uh, if you'd like to vote in Columbus, Ohio. Which would be illegal since I'm registered in New York. We, we, we <laughs> show, showed video earlier of the voting booth at Hugh White Honda out on I-270. I guess after you vote, you can look at the latest, you know, uh, the, the latest 2017 <laughs> HRV crossover. David Harrow with us in Chicago with Harris Associates. And David, the imagery of Americans voting in a Honda dealership in Columbus, Ohio, speaks to your view on foreign investment in the multinational world we live in. Give us an update 
on the Japanese shares, the European shares you own, of their investment in this America? Well, the uh, Honda, of course, is, has a very big manufacturing footprint in the United States. In fact, I believe they produce more cars in the U.S. than they do in Japan. Note that they were the first transplant. Or maybe Volkswagen was. Remember Volkswagen yeah. had that plant in Pennsylvania many, many years ago that made rabbits. Um, but I, I think Honda preceded that. And so, you know, a huge manufacturing footprint for Honda. Same with Toyota. Even the German luxury makers now, you know, in, in the Carolinas and uh, uh, BMW makes trucks. All their X5s, X4, X3s are all made in the United States. I think all almost 800,000-plus units, and ex, a lot of these are exported. So, you know, we certainly have a very global economy. Note that manufacturers want to be near where their consumers are. So you've had foreign companies expanding their uh, footprint in the United States and elsewhere. When I first came into this business, I remember this was in the mid-'80s, uh, you go to Sweden and everyone just exported from Sweden, as an example, or from Italy or from Germany. And now these big multinationals have made plants where their customers are. So it's it's been uh, this has been a widespread theme over the last couple of decades. David, do you expect the conversation, in light of that, do you expect the conversation about trade and trade policy to continue here? We're on the, the, the perch of, of going down a path that would uh, see the TPP withering away. Uh, do you expect we're going to have a, a, a serious conversation about trade after this election is over with, or are we done? Well, I would hope so, because you know, properly instituted trade policies are very conducive to economic growth. And you know, it's, remember David Ricardo and his theories of comparative and competitive advantage, I think these things still hold true today. And there, there is a massive benefit to trade. Now, I think people are concerned about some of the impacts of trade that have to be dealt with. And you also have to look at the fairness of the deals. Are, are they really objectively negotiated, uh, well-negotiated deals? But the notion and the principle of free trade is very important if you want to continue to keep a vibrant, growing global economy. You need the free flow of goods, services, of capital, of people. You need these things in order to, to uh, enhance and encourage growth. We're about to talk to Megan Green with, with Manulife, chief uh, economist at Manulife. And in her most recent note, she poses a rhetorical question here, that being, uh, what's the role of, of the president? For you, David Harrow, the investor, what do you look to the president to do? What, what makes a, a good president? Well, I think the president should really kind of set the theme. And if you look at what, what I believe is one of the best presidents we've had in our time, Ronald Reagan, he set his themes, broad general themes individual responsibility, government that governs the least governs the best, you know, fair and easy to understand regulation. And notice how that was replicated throughout the world uh, as he was fairly successful at it here in the United States. So the, the president really, it's, it's kind of on the softer side, really has to take lead at these things. And I think one of the issues in the past has been, you know, we are one country and the, and the president should act as a unifier, not as a divider. And I think in the past we've had, 
you know, very divisive, uh, strong divisiveness. And this is hopefully the next president, whoever it may be, mm-hmm. is more of a unifier. And, and yes, we're, we're many differences, but we have many similarities yeah. and common values. And the president must highlight those. From the Northwest, as we were taught in school, David Harrow. <laughs> this has been wonderful, David. Thank you so much for the uh, classy diversion from the world of international investment. David Harrow, of course, with Harris Associates with a stunning track record over the years in trying to buy value within international equities. And, of course, today we speak of the Northwest, David, as it was taught to us in the middle 19th century, early 19th century. David Gurra and Tom Keene, we're going to flip this interview on its head. We usually start with Dennis Garbin about the markets, about commodities, about red wheat. But no, on this election day, we speak of the nation. Dennis, wonderful to have you on. The back part of the Garbin letter is always exceptionally trenchant. And you, I, I must admit, you try like crazy to be nonpartisan. <laughs> Help us here with what these two candidates mean for your many markets. What does it mean if we have a President Trump or a President Clinton? Well, I, I think if we have a President Clinton, and, and I didn't vote for her, if we have a President, President Clinton and, and, a, and a Senate that is Republican and a, and a House that remains Republican, I think that's probably the best of all worlds because I think it means gridlock, and I'm a big fan of gridlock because as long as you can't do anything to me, you can't harm me. I think if we have a President um, Trump, uh, who I find to be a, a – I did, in fact, vote for him, but uh, I did so with a uh, nose held uh, tight, uh, and a Republican House and a Republican Senate, I fear that we may have a, an increase in trade protection, and I don't think that that could be possibly good for the stock market or for the capital markets generally. So I guess what I'm hoping for is, is, a, is a presidency that moves to the Democrat side and a House and Senate that stay on the Republican side. Uh, give me gridlock, uh, or, or as uh, one of the great patriots here in Virginia might have said, give me gridlock or give me death. Uh, I think that's the best of all worlds. Reading the, the, the latest letter, I was struck by the degree to which the, the FBI investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails touched every single commodity you, you wrote about. You're, you're not uh, underestimating the size of, of the effect of that. No, I'm not underestimating the size of the effect of that. I think if, if, if you get a Trump presidency, perhaps it's beneficial to the production of crude oil. Uh, otherwise, it, and, and, but that, that, that therefore will be detrimental to the price of crude oil. Uh, it might not be drill, baby, drill, but it'll be drill, buddy, drill, and drill a little bit and do fine. Uh, that can't be supportive of the crude oil market. And protection, trade protection, is always going to be deleterious to commodity prices generally. Again, give me gridlock, and then we can return to the fundamentals of each commodity individually. I can make the case that the worst possible news of great production here in the United States is already discounted in the grain market. I don't think that uh, the price at 44 to $45 per barrel for WTI is fully discounted, and I think that that can probably be another 2 to $3 to the downside. But give me gridlock, and I can go back to fundamentals rather than mm. psychologicals, rather than technicals. Dennis, help, help me understand something. So I'm going back to your vote here. You, you hear yeah. hoping for a Democratic president, yet you voted for the, the Republican. I imagine there are some other people in your yeah. shoes. But walk us through the thinking there. Why not just vote for the, the person that you want to be in the office? 
Um, because my wife might have left me if I voted for the wrong person. <laughs> I'll be, I, I had, I have to vote for a Republican. All, all things being otherwise equal, uh, I, I, I really didn't have. I, I make that that comment uh, uh, humorously, but quite honestly, I had really no choice. He is at least in most instances regarding taxation closer to what I think about. Um, he is in in most instances regarding the the corruption of the United States and the demoralization of the of the psychology of the country, the the demeaning of education. He's closer to what I believe in, so I had to vote for him. But and, but do I still wish that we that we get a right. gridlocked country? Yes, I do. Dennis, what do you see on turnout? What does it look like? For you're in Virginia this morning, right? Well, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, my wife and I went to vote uh, the other day. We voted early, and, and it was really quite crowded. I was really surprised how many people were there in, in, in the voting booth. Uh, the young man, Chip, who works for us, went and voted this morning here in Virginia, and he walked right through. So I was surprised, yeah. given, the, given the nearly perfect right. weather prevailing, that mm. uh, he was able to mm. get in and get out with, it with no problem. Are stocks moving from the lower left to the upper right? They still are uh, after yes. They still are moving from the lower left to the upper right. Depends on which 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 country one looks at. I'm a little more bullish of the circumstances prevailing in Japan and and, and Europe than I am here in the United States. Uh, I'd rather be bullish of the of the stock markets where they are continuously being expansionary as far as their monetary policies are concerned. And without question, it, though every time you try to get short of the stock market here in the United States, it does in fact blow up in your face. So you have to err upon the side of trying to be long of stocks, yeah. all things being otherwise equal. Do you see use of cash continuing? The great theme of, and Brian Belsky at BMO Capital Markets was adamant today that this theme continues of dividend growth and share buyback. Do you see any change in that? I'm really concerned that for many, many years, for as many, you know, for what the, the past decade, the the instead of capital moving into plant and equipment, too much capital is moving into the buying back of equity, and I, that I find disconcerting. If things were really economically strong, if things were really doing well, if the tax rates in the United States and in, in business were reduced, we would see that money moving into new plant, new equipment, new, new labor. Instead, it's been moving into buying back stock, and that I find. Oh. A dismaying event. Well, Dennis, I've got good news. North Carolina plays Duke before they get to North Carolina <laughs> State. Thank God. So the Tar Heels will be so worn out by Duke and the Citadel. Oh, wow. By the time they get to Friday, November 25th. At Keenan, I think. Gura on the 48-9-yard line. <laughs> Gartman on the 51-yard line. It will be something. Go I ahead, I didn't Tom. even know they played football at North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they have a sizable stadium. I think they're five and one this season. The Wolfpack uh, record two. is they're not as good. Sorry. They're killing it. <laughs> five and one of the ACC. Uh, Dennis, you watching the Wolfpack this season? Uh, sadly, yes, I am. I watched us miss a field goal from the two yard line to lose to Clemson. I watched us throw an interception the other day against Florida State to lose to them. Yes, sadly, I am. I am. Uh, I, I. I. You should indict me for that one. I am watching. <laughs> All right, Dennis it's Garvin. It's rigged. North good. Carolina State football. Dennis, it's rigged. There you go. <laughs> Dennis Garvin, editor and publisher of the Garvin Letter. On to matters of, of, of greater significance, perhaps. We had this earthquake oh, no, outside. No, there's no, nothing, so there's nothing more significant. significant than that. Yeah. <laughs> we had this earthquake outside Cushing. Uh, what's the what's the effect been here on, on oil since then? And, and get us up to speed on the ongoing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth it, on production cuts with OPEC. 
Yeah, interestingly, interestingly, one might have thought that that would be bullish of the crude oil market, but in reality, it's really not. Uh, maybe it is supportive for, of, of WTI, but it, it and it might narrow the, the relationship between WTI and, and uh, Brent crude a bit. Uh, you will not see as much crude oil. The propensity for moving crude oil into storage in Cushing probably has somewhat uh, been somewhat reduced, and isn't all economics the study of people's propensities yeah. to do something? But but on balance, I think the impact of, of that is other than on the carrying charges, other than on on the movement from contango to backwardation and and, and back again, the the impact upon crude oil prices generally is really quite small. What's really important is that yes, there probably shall be some sort of an agreement, and the operative words are some sort. And the, operative, the second operative awards are, will they be cheated on? There may be some sort of an agreement at the November OPEC meeting, but they will be cheated on by everybody. It is, if I've learned anything in 40 years of watching the markets, you can count on OPEC cheating. The headline for me seems to be Russian indecision prevails. I mean, since that agreement was reached in principle, we've seen back back and forth from, from uh, the president of, of Russia, the head of the, the largest gas company there. I mean, it's been a, a constant back and forth. I, I think perhaps the most important comments made were not made by anybody within OPEC, but were, in fact, by Mr. Sechin, as you, as you just suggested, the president of Rosneft, who, when asked at that last meeting in Algiers if he intended to curtail production, and he, asked, he, he said, why should I? If everybody else is, I shall continue to produce. That is his job. And, and as long as Rosneft, the largest Russian oil producer, and Russia vies with, with Saudi Arabia being the largest world's producer of crude oil, if the largest producer in Russia refuses to, to curtail production, why would anybody else? It's, it's one of those things. It's a race to the bottom as far as I'm concerned. So the odds of any material agreement coming out of the meeting, the OPEC meeting in Vienna at the, at the end of this month, that alas are negligible at best. We were talking with Carl Weinberg of High Frequency Economics yesterday about the, the situation in Canada, something so tightly tied to the energy picture there. Has it stabilized now? When you look at the Canadian economy, how is it doing vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the energy economy in Canada? Well, first of all, I'm surprised at how long the honeymoon has lasted for Mr. Trudeau. Uh, he, yes, he does have very nice hair, but he's not been. Uh, I, I can't imagine him being the greatest of all leaders. But he has done nothing untoward, nothing uh, discouraging, uh, to to limit production or, or to increase production. He's basically stayed aside. He's let most of the most of the, the circumstances prevailing uh, fall upon the shoulders of the provincial premier. And I am a little dismayed that Ms. Notley, the, the premier of Alberta, is right. openly antagonistic towards crude oil production out of the tar sands. But I think she is not long for that position in, in, of authority in, in Alberta. She will probably be turned out of office in, by the next election. I, um, I may, hope. Well, we'll see on that. Canadian elections we're not focused on today. There is a thing called Martingale probability theory. I made a joke about the new Las Vegas hockey team, Dennis, that they ought to be called the Las Vegas Martingales. And nobody but Ed Thorpe, nobody but Ed Thorpe got my analysis. I'm a big believer in what's called anti-Martingale theory, which is establish a trade and add to that trade as your success and your gain improves. You have an exceptionally important final two sentences of your Monday note, which is you were stopped out at a modest loss of euro. You yeah. were hoping euro would go weak, and it went strong. And you got right back into the trade after the stop. Yeah. Now, folks, a Gartman lesson on being careful. Mm. Discuss this, Dennis. Well, it 
Yes, I did get stopped out. I, I, I sold Euro at 110.90 and went to 111.25. It actually went to 11.35 right at the very last trade on Friday. A, a little discouraging, but it wasn't that much of a loss. It was 4 agreed, tenths of 1%. Agreed, percent. agreed. But the, the hard part is to come back in and say, look, the market is telling me that I'm right because the euro then got weak again yesterday. The trend has been downward for the past two years, clearly. Uh, it has obviously been lower for the past several months and seems to be getting stronger to the downside. And, and it, the, the, the euro is losing on a consistent basis relative to the, to the Swiss franc, which I think is a, a thermometer of, of, uh, of foreign exchange trading circumstances. As long as that continues, I'm going to be bearish of, of uh, the euro. Was I wrong for 40 pips? Yes. But the, the hardest thing to do is to get stopped out and come back in when the market tells you that you're right. You always want to try to do it at a higher price than where you got stopped out at. Uh, but coming in, and, and, and I had no choice. I had to come in and do it again. I think that the euro trades under par sometime in the next year or two. Uh, I think that what we've seen for the past mm -hmm. two years is a consolidation of what's been a long-term bear market. The political yeah. circumstances in Europe are confusing, and the monetary authorities are remaining expansionary. And you carry that conviction forward with your gold in euro yeah. terms. I yeah. did an inflation-adjusted gold chart the other day, and again, it is striking how gold is elevated when you adjust for inflation. Is gold of value now, Mr. Gartman? I'm not sure that gold in dollar terms is a value, but I, I see gold as being nothing more than, than a safe haven currency. It is, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a gold bug. I don't think that gold is the be-all and end-all. I think it is simply another currency. And currency traders, having grown up as a currency trader, you are taught to trade one currency against another, to spread the, the old German mark against the Italian lira, to spread the euro against the British pound sterling, to spread yen against uh, the euro. And I want to own the currency that likely shall rally where the monetary authorities are being constrictive, and, and I want to be short of the currency where the monetary authorities are being expansionary. Uh, there's not that much gold being mined. That, that, that monetary authority, if we can call it such, is somewhat restrictive, but the monetary mm -hmm. authorities in Europe are being expansionary. Buy gold in euro terms. Mm -hmm. It eliminates a great good yeah. deal of the daily random noise incumbent in gold itself. De uh, Dennis, Ryan Switzer. Wide receiver, the Tar Heels, <laughs> Charleston, West Virginia, senior. He's the yeah. one to watch. All right. Yeah, Dennis, no, I hope he gets uh, – well, I'll, I'll, yes, we have to watch everybody. It, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it, and, and actually, nobody has to watch us much once we go within the 20-yard line. We, we apparently cannot score at all. Thank you for that football analysis. Dennis Gartman, go North Carolina State. We greatly appreciate it on uh, this election day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.